We'll go ahead and dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. And as they're headed back there, let me invite you, if you brought your Bible with you, to open up to Matthew chapter 5 or some sort of device that has the Bible on it. We will have a lot of these uh, passages on the screen for you to follow along, but I just sometimes love to just have it here in front of me. As I do that, let me just mention a few things you heard Reynolds kind of talk about, uh, Disciple Now coming up, and being a student pastor for myself for 15 years, um, the two events, Disciple Now and our youth mission trip every summer, were the ones that uh, I just saw God use in just incredible ways. Um, You call it uh, a Disciple Now because it's not, as he said about the event, it's about sitting around in circles and living rooms. And trying to align the, the heart of God with our hearts. And, um, and so I'm praying and I encourage you as a church to pray. Uh, maybe you saw the email too that uh, they're asking for us to bring some toiletries and such things uh, for the hub. They're going to pack little bags for our friends um, downtown. If you didn't get a chance to do that, you can certainly drop those by our Benton office this week. Um, email one of us and I'm sure we can arrange to even get it from you if needed. I think they're going to be putting those things together Uh, next Saturday. We have been in a series called The Way of Jesus, and we've been looking at um, these three kind of directions that Jesus lived his life. If a friend of of yours, maybe you work with or a neighbor, didn't know anything about the Christian faith, and they would come up and ask you, hey, what does it mean to follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? I think you could easily summarize the life of Jesus and the call on our lives as Christians in these three directions. That we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus said was the greatest commandment. That's that upward direction of loving God. We see this certainly in the life of Jesus as he modeled it. Complete surrender to God. It could be um, outward to the lost world, as Jesus said, and the second commandment is like it, go love your neighbor as yourself, and then he would tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And then in John 13, he says, the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's this inward dimension. So we've had these kind of action words that we would It would help remind us that we would walk in balance in these three directions, looking up this idea of surrender, leaning in this idea of real biblical community, and then today we're finishing up this outward direction of living out, this idea of a a witness to what God has done in and through us, or living this compelling life. And this is no new idea. Those who followed Jesus understood these things very well. Jesus in his uh, Sermon on the Mount was introducing people to this idea of the kingdom of God. Would you read with me in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13? It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that when they see your good works and give glory, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray as we meditate on it and think about it, focus our attention on it for the next few minutes, that you would convict us of sin in our heart, that we would see this great picture of who you are, God, by seeing who Jesus is, and Holy Spirit, would you do the work of illuminating the face of Jesus, that we would turn away from these smaller pursuits that seem to grab after our lives, and we would turn our eyes towards him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We had the privilege of uh, going to a conference called the Linger Conference in Dallas the past couple of days with a few people um, from our church. 
It's a great conference. It's like a lot of worship and a lot of uh, preaching, and, um, and I, I love it. It was great to sit there. One of the uh, speakers used this illustration that I thought was so great about buying a Lamborghini but never taking it out of second gear. You have this incredible piece of machinery. Speedometer probably says 250 on it, but you never go past 35 because you've never taken it out of second gear. And I thought what a great picture that, that is of most of people's of the Christian life as evidence in most of the church. That Jesus promises abundant, overflowing life. That James talks about having joy in the midst of suffering. Scripture talks about a peace that passes understanding. You see this incredible picture of the church in, in the book of Acts as the gospel comes and Pentecost happens and people begin to just walk in this, what it means to, to, to walk with God and to have your identity in Christ and the whole world has changed. It says that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of the bread and the prayer and there was this like sense of awe on everyone. And then you look at the church today, and we, we seem to miss that. Not just the church, just think about your own life. When's the last time you opened God's word and were communing with him or spent time in prayer, and you, you were just in this sense of awe, just like, I just can't, I just can't believe it. It's the last time during worship that your heart was just captured up into something so much bigger, something so much greater than you. It's this incredible picture that Jesus paints here in Matthew 5, this light of the world. This is the purpose of the gospel in us, is that it would be extended through us to the world. We would be a city on a hill. And this passage comes immediately after the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus pronounces what his kingdom coming to earth would look like. In this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us, that he uses these phrases like blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and blessed are the peacemakers, sons of God. This incredible picture of the gospel moving out in this very counter-cultural kind of way, this paradigm-shifting way that you could look at them and say, man, there's something so radically different about the people who follow the way of Jesus. In these ways, through a transformed life, that people would see in you a hope that transcends culture, It transcends current events and personal tragedy and the series of lingering disappointments. And in the midst of all that, that there would be this group of people that identify themselves with the name of Christ, Christians, would have real hope and real joy and real life. And it would be real. The nature and the essence of salt, you're the salt of the earth, Jesus would say, is to flavor and preserve but once it's watered down it's worth nothing the nature and essence of light is that it would illuminate to shine to dispel darkness it's under a bowl it's worth nothing and this is the call of Jesus unto us the son of God knew that it would be a real struggle for us That we wouldn't just take the gospel in a selfish way as a ticket to eternal life one day. But that it should be working in us so we would selflessly extend our lives just as Jesus did. Investing in other people. The very nature of the gospel in you should be this readiness to give testimony or to be a witness to a God who redeems and restores. But most of us, most Christians don't live like this. I read this quote this week. It was such a uh, punch to the gut. Let me read it to you. It's by a guy named William Irvine. There's a danger that you will mislive. 
that despite all your activity, despite all your pleasant diversions that you have might have enjoyed for uh, while alive, that you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you're going to look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. It's a great privilege as a pastor to walk with people as they live. One of the parts of the job is not that you would help people just live well, but you would help them die well. How often, as is the case mostly, when you're at someone's deathbed, and you can ask Jason or other people in ministry here, this is a real thing. On the deathbed, as people begin to evaluate the most important things in their life. And at that point, almost, it's almost too late. As they look back on a life that they have lived many times squandered, there's this real danger that you will mislive. I was thinking about that this week in my own life and life of others and people that pastor and People are part of this church. There are real ways that we mislive. If life is a journey of following Jesus, we soon find out that there are potholes and obstacles along the way that will distract and deter us from really following after Jesus and, 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 and loving what's most lovely and investing our, in our life, our life in the things that are most worthy. Unique obstacles that keep us stuck and paralyzed and afraid. And together they tend to create this lack of missional confidence through spiritual compromise or through wounds or immaturity. I just wrote down a few of them. These are the things that, that, that lead us unto misliving. These are the things that keep us from living this abundant life of missional witness unto the world. There's sin and broken habits. When our hearts are dealing with sin and addiction and broken habits, especially when they're hidden. I'm not saying that we don't struggle, we all struggle in here. First John would say, He who says he does not sin is a liar. And when we keep those things hidden, we don't pull them into the light, we never have the strength, the courage to lead because we're always plagued with guilt and shame and an unwillingness to lead out of desire of being called a hypocrite as the spotlight points onto our very own lives. Then there are functional idols when our hearts desire other things more than God. We look to other things to bring a fulfillment that only the gospel and walking with Jesus can, other things to give us meaning, turning good things into ultimate things in our life. This is the pursuit of the wrong things where our culture kind of grabs our heart in a subtle and not so subtle ways, and we pursue things as ultimate like wealth and fame and status and achievement and pleasure. And none of those things are bad things. But when we make them the ultimate things, they rob us of real lasting joy. They become the pursuit of our life. And we one day find out that they do not provide what they promise Then there's the fear of man, this paralyzing fear that comes from just just always wondering what other people think of us, this slave to the opinion of someone else, this group that we want to be accepted by and validated by and not rejected. The fear of man is the fear of being misunderstood or rejected or perceived as weird perhaps losing access to something that we perceive to be valuable, acceptance in this group. What will they think if I say this? This controls us many times and leads us unto misliving, this fear of man. Then there's wounds, things that happened a long time ago when we actually maybe did take a step of faith and someone responded in rejection to us or the hurt from an upbringing, no matter How much we desire to participate in the mission of God, wounds often keep us from being ineffective 
Just like someone with a broken leg is not going to be very valuable on a battlefield. Some of us have deep wounds that we've never invited God into to address and to heal. And they keep us from living the kind of life that God has for us. And then there's selfishness. This is just a heart occupied primarily with its own advancements and interest or comfort. Not being moved by compassion for other people. Focused on maintaining control of our time, our energy and resources. It's just selfishness of how is this going to impact me? And there's triviality, this time and energy wasted by meaningless preoccupation of our attention in a world of smartphones and binging on Netflix and hot takes on everything. It has never been easier to be pulled into the trivial. I like to get up in the morning and make a cup of coffee and I read a verse a couple times that I'm trying to memorize and I go sit down and open my Bible and start to read God's Word. And if I don't have my actual Bible with me, I read it on my iPad or even sometimes on my phone. But it's so easily that you'd be drawn into other things. And the way they, like, even write these captions on the, on the news, right, it would be like, you know, whatever it is. And it just, like, pulls you into it. You flip over and read the article, and then you spend 35 minutes researching black holes. Like, what's a black hole? I don't know, but... This triviality. I read this week in the time an average American binges shows on Netflix. He could master another language every year. In just three years, the average person could memorize the New Testament. Just in the time that we spend binging this, this triviality. And again, these things are not bad in and of themselves, but when when we make them ultimate, when we make them just so part of our rhythm that they just kind of pull at our heart and soul, we end up with an empty soul. And then when the people around you really do walk through dark times and you need to give Jesus to them, you've got nothing to give them but an empty soul. Another one might be apathy. Maybe that better word is numbness. We fill our lives with so much that we don't think we have time to drink deeply and rest in Jesus. So we live out of this empty soul. Can I be honest with you, just as your friend? Most of the time when I don't live an outward life, it's because I'm not too impressed with Jesus anymore. I've made life all about strategy, and I've made life all about the next step, and I've made life all about the neat little boxes that I've put them in, and I'm just not really impressed with Jesus anymore. I just become numb to him. And when that happens to us, well, then being vocal about what he's done in our heart and life in any kind of way is inauthentic at best. Again, they were in awe because they were walking with Jesus. And as they walk with Jesus, their life just kind of, it just kind of oozed out of them everywhere they went. And that's why there were numbers being added to the church every day. Not because they had the next new service or the the next greatest talented worship leader or whatever kind of act. They had no act. They had persecution is what they had. And yet the church just continued to grow. And when we look across the landscape of the world today, the church is growing most in places where it's illegal to be a Christian. Last statistics I read, they think over 20,000 new believers every day are happening in China. And we're just 18 months or so away more believers per capita in China than there will be in the United States. And it's illegal in many places. So the call this morning, if you miss everything else and you only remember this thing, it's that we would be smitten with Jesus once again. 
that we would be in awe of him, abiding in him, our souls filled by him, our joy overflowing because we walk with him, our lives being restored by him. This is what it means to walk with Jesus. And that's why we can't just walk out of here and try harder. We've got to spend time in the presence of Jesus. We have everything we need right now to live the kind of life that Jesus is asking us to live. Everything we need to live a missional life. As Christians, we have the truth of the gospel. We've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You hear this all the time. I hear this, and so it becomes numb to us, but think about that. Yesterday, we're on our way home from this conference, and Hudson calls. And he's talking to Ashley, and she just starts cackling, laughing, and I can't even understand what she's saying. I said, what is he asking for? I said, hey, Mom, do we have any gunpowder around the house? Gunpowder. Like, if we did, I don't know what we'd be doing, but... We would certainly not give it to you, right? What would you, what would you do with a thing of gunpowder, Hudson? This idea of power through the Holy Spirit in our lives. If that's not enough, we have the record of history showing how improbable Jesus, many times moronic band of followers, changed the world. We have the promises of Scripture that Jesus will build his church. We have the joy of a community of believers. Above all, we have the love of Jesus that won't let us go even if we fear or fail. We love ultimately because Christ loved us. And this is the call. That we would be a city on a hill. The way we've been doing the series is the first part of the series is this like introduction to this biblical concept, and then the second one is more kind of like practical ways. So we'll continue with that today. As last week we talked about living on the redemptive edge, what that looks like. I want to make this pretty practical to us. How can we as Covenant Church leave here equipped and motivated to live a life on mission with God? Really three categories, and we're going to go through the first two pretty quickly and spend a little bit more time on the third. The first is mission through evangelism. And I hate to even use that word, but maybe we can redeem it. Evangelism is not even a Christian word. Evangelism, just in and of itself, was a Greek word that meant proclaiming the good news. And they would send messengers ahead of them to proclaim what had happened on the battlefield. And they would get into a city and they would scream out at the top of their lungs, Roma Victor, Roma Victor, meaning Rome had won. And they called these people evangelists because they were there to proclaim the good news. And so the church used this word and kind of tweaked it and said, you know what, we're all evangelists in a sense, declaring the good news of Jesus. All of us are evangelizing. We're all evangelists declaring to the world what we believe to be the most beautiful and glorious thing. We are telling everyone about it. Look at people's Facebook page, and it's what they think to be the most glorious and beautiful thing. Everyone's an evangelist, declaring to the world what we believe to be the most beautiful. Just listen how people talk. For some of them, the most beautiful thing is the new CrossFit exercise or whatever it is. And those people about CrossFit are passionate about it. You got to be to get up at 5 o'clock and go do anything in the morning every day, right? That's pretty passionate. Or maybe it's LSU football. I was on a plane a couple weeks ago before the national championship, and the lady behind me was probably in her mid-60s. She was sitting next to a guy who'd come to visit from out of town and she was trying to convince him to watch the game that was going to the national championship game. And he says, oh, I don't watch TV. I don't even own a television. She spent the next two hours on the flight trying to convince this poor guy 
Every time I take my headphones off, she's still going at it. And how he should sacrifice his, you know, convictions to watch this one game. Like she was wearing purple and gold on the plane. She was an evangelist about LSU football. And of course that sounds silly, but it really is the truth. The things that we're most passionate about are the things that we are so easily ready to share. For Christians, we should find that Christ is the most glorious and beautiful, and we should share that everywhere that we go. It should literally just ooze out of us. And this doesn't have to look like a crazy person. We're not, we're not handing out sandwich boards as you leave here to spend your lunch hour tomorrow with a sandwich board and a megaphone. No, this is just a decision to be faithfully engaged in those around us, listening well to them, pointing them to Jesus. Romans 10, Paul says it this way, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we say yes and amen. How then will they call upon him if they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless... This is Paul telling the church, you You've learned probably many methods of doing this. And some of those are right and good, but... It starts with prayer, praying that you would just pray and ask God that he would reveal himself to people who, are, who don't know Jesus. Look for ways to invest in their lives. Faithfully pursue deeper relationship with people. Ask good questions. Are you a person of faith? What do you think about Jesus? Invite them to take spiritual steps. We are all evangelists for the things that we care most about. There's mission through evangelism. There's mission through mercy and justice. We have opportunity to join Jesus on the redemptive edge for caring for the least of these, to be involved in the needs of our neighborhood and our city, not just so we feel better about community projects, but through meeting needs that we could introduce people to the joy of Jesus, that it might open the door for us to point them to him. There's this crazy passage in Matthew 25, and you've probably read it before, about the final judgment. Jesus says this. I don't think I have it all on the screen in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food and thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And I was naked and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you in sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, Truly as I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it unto me. There's this real mission through mercy and justice. That we should live our lives, find ways to weave into the rhythm of our lives, investing into the last, the lost, and the I was sitting down with Cassie, who leads the hub, just a few weeks ago, and she had a loving word of rebuke for us as a church. Somewhere on our website, it says something about that we will live mission for God where we play. You've heard us even say that, right? Where we live, work, and play by God's design, we're going to carry the mission of God. And she said, the only problem with that, Luke, is that your church if you only did that where you live, work, and play, you would never minister into the least of these. Because most, most, mo in most cases, you don't live next to them. You don't work with them. They're not in your networks of soccer leagues. I was at Paris Taco, and I almost choked on a chip. I was like, man, that's really forward. But something I really need to hear 
It's foolish for us to think that the least of these would take on the personality of a missionary and cross all these cultural boundaries so that they could come and live and work and play where we're at. No, we've got to take the gospel to them. That was the essence of the Great Commission. It doesn't sound as good where we live, work, and play and intentionally pursue, but that's really what it should say. Someone came up to Cassie and asked her, just in conversation, if you've ever been anywhere with her, everyone in town, someone asked her about this. Well, sometimes it's hard for me to give my money to those that are poor because what if they waste it? She was just on a roll that day. She asked in response, well, do you ever waste money? Conversation over. Because of course we do, and yet God entrusts it to us again and again. It is not about what, what they do with it. It's about our step of obedience. And finally, and I want to focus really on this for the next 10 minutes until we're done, this idea of mission. Mission through Hospitality. Hebrews 13, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I heard a pastor recently joke that this was on his spiritual bucket list, to entertain an angel. And then one day get to heaven and be like, I knew you were an angel, right? Hospitality, it's a word that maybe is overused. The biblical definition comes from two words. You hear that in, in, in the words of love, this idea of friendship. But then xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. Hospitality literally means the love or friendship of a stranger or foreigner. And this is not easy to us, to show hospitality to friends, acquaintances, much less strangers. Hospitality can be difficult. When we think about it, most of us think about this like endless social energy figuring out what a person's favorite drink is and making sure you're waiting for them when they come over to your house or the person who loves to cook and clean all day like this person really exists, just to open up their home and you walk in and it is like meticulous, right? Now, I love to show up in those kinds of places and most of them are hotels. They're not our homes. My house is not normally one of them, Right? Biblical hospitality is not about a personality or dinner parties. Biblical hospitality is a command that we would love the stranger or the foreigner. That we would extend friendship to the, to the stranger and foreigner. I was reading this book about this. I talked to Jason about it this past week. After reading this book by Joshua Jipp called Saved by Faith and Hospitality, it's a phenomenal book. I told Jason, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. Seriously, like this, with these biblical mandates for us to offer biblical hospitality, he defines it this way, hospitality act, a process in which the identity of a stranger is transformed into that of a guest. While hospitality often uses necessities of life, such as opening one's home or offering food or drink or clothing, the primary impulse of hospitality is to create a safe and welcoming place where a stranger can be converted into a friend. Creating an environment of welcome that allows the conversion of one's identity from a stranger to a friend, from an insider to from an outsider to an insider so they can belong, from a statistic to a story. It's turning the other into another, as in the biblical command to love one another. You've heard us tell the story of Jesse, that this happened to us when we moved downtown. And Jesse was a homeless man that slept in the door that we had to wake up just so we could go into the, into the building using. And it didn't take long for Jesse to become a friend, for us to 
hear his story, for him to be invited into our lives. And it moved even in us, in our version, in our vision of, of what homelessness even is, from a statistic to a story. You can't read much of the New Testament without seeing this. Practice out. You can't read much of real history of the church. This is what they were known for. The love of strangers. Friends of strangers. Why is hospitality such an essential part of our faith? Because salvation is the result of God's hospitality. 1 Peter 2 says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you weren't a people, and because of God's generous hospitality, he came to rescue you. You went from a stranger to an heir to the kingdom of God. Can you even imagine how big that is? Imagine you had a rich aunt die. They called all the family members together. And you thought, man, this might be good. They're going to read the will. I mean, she was worth a billion dollars. Surely a million is mine. You gather in the lawyer's office. He opens the big docket. He starts doing all the things. And then it gets to the good part. Find out what you get. And yet your rich aunt gave it all to some dude named Fred. She met at Petco a couple weeks ago. And you're like, what? what, what is this about? This is the generosity of God extending the kingdom of God to us. This invitation that we could become an heir to the kingdom of God because of his hospitality. Most of us read the Bible like we're the Jew that gets upgraded to Jesus. But we're not the Jew. Anybody in here Jews? Anybody? No, 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 no. We're the Gentile. We're the pagan Canaanite. We're, we're the Philistine. We're the Samaritan. We are outside of God's covenant promise. Ephesians 3 says we were strangers to the covenant of promise. And this is what makes the ministry of Jesus so extraordinary. The distance he went, the boundaries that he pushed against, the length that he went to extend the hand of friendship. But so much more than that, he offered us a seat at the table. Even more than that, a place in his family. And this is the scandalous hospitality of God. That's why most of the religious people could not even have a conversation with him. They did not get it. What do you mean God is going to transcend such a chasm that he would welcome in the heathen? Because that's the heart of God. Next time you feel a little prideful, just read the Gospel of Luke. It'll take you about 25 minutes. You can do it really in one sitting. Just read through some of the parables that Jesus talked about. This incredible Sending this hand of friendship to those who don't deserve it, namely me. Last week we talked about the lost son, the lost sheep. Basically Jesus saying that my job is celebrating when the outsider becomes an insider, when the foreigner becomes part of the family. One commentary said it this way, the theme in Luke's gospel. The entire ministry of Jesus is appropriately captured in the phrase, Divine hospitality to the stranger and sinner. Can I ask you a real personal question? Is that the theme of your life? Divine hospitality to the stranger and the sinner. Now, if I can be honest with you, occasionally I have a Jesus moment. Occasionally. But the rule of my life is not this. The credibility of our faith rests on the quality of our hospitality. The credibility of our faith, if we really believe it, if it's really true to us, if our hearts have really been changed because of the generosity and hospitality of God, we will accept it to those outside of us. 1 Peter 4. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What a powerful verse. There's so much murmuring and grumbling in the church. Oh, do we have to invite them over? Oh, not them again. Man, I hope they don't show up. They never stop talking. They're always pushing something. 
But murmuring leads to the wilderness, to the barrenness. You will not murmur your way into the kingdom of God. Many of you have heard us talk about this book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. If you haven't read that book, it's a great read. It's, it's heavy. There's a lot, of, a lot of incredible things. Rosaria was a lesbian feminist professor at a major university. She was chairing a position there on women's studies or something of the like. And this evangelical men's group, Promise Keepers, maybe you've heard of it, was coming to town. And so she wrote an opposition piece in the paper about it, talking about how it shouldn't come and people shouldn't go. And it was through that that a Presbyterian pastor invited her over to dinner so that they could discuss their differences. And I don't have all these quotes. It's a rather lengthy quote, but I want to read this part because this is, to me, gospel hospitality. She says, I have always read all of my hate mail, mail, call me a masochist, and I came to the conclusion that Ken, he's the pastor, Ken's letter of opposition was the kindest one that I had ever received. I also liked the fact that Ken had the right pedigree to help me with my research, and when Ken and his wife, Roy, invited me to dinner, I said yes. My motives were clear, she writes, surely this would be good for my research. I considered Ken Smith my potential unpaid research assistant. But the task at hand was daunting, and that's why on this day I was sitting in my truck for so long, not quite ready to knock on the front of his door and walk across its threshold. Somehow, she writes, I would have to emerge from this meal understanding the, the oppressive logic that elevated a dead book above the desires of good people, and I would have to do so without having an emotional breakdown. To be hated for who you are carries insidious violence. And I had been on the receiving end of that before with Christians. Dealing with Christians, again, she's writing, was toxic work. Like deep sea diving, you could only stay down there so long before the long-term consequences took hold. I wanted to learn why Christians hated me, but also maintain with integrity my point of view. The prospect made me sick to my stomach. I breathed hard and hoisted myself out of my truck, nursing a tender hamstring for my morning run. I waded through the unusually thick high humidity to the front door, and I knocked. The threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened the way I not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayers. Other believers from the church university walked through the door of this house as if, as if there was no door at all. Nothing prepared me for the openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practice of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of a church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my own sexual sin. Rosaria, life, was incredibly changed. That, the threshold of their life brought me to the foot of the cross. What a line. Church, what about the threshold of your life? When people get around you, the cubicle next to yours, the kids in your classroom, the teachers on your staff, people on your intramural squad, the students that you go to school with, the people in your little group, the families that you invite over for dinner parties, your neighbors next door, 
What is the threshold of your life? When they get with you, experience the love of Jesus. Alan Hirsch wrote this way, people should be able to experience a foretaste of heaven from our families and our homes. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. I love this last line. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. The two things I love, eating and the kingdom of God. Is there, is there a better practice for me, right? People should be able to experience a foretaste of heaven. Why? Because you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. What's so unique about that in the landscape that had no electricity? A city on a hill could be seen far, far away. And after a long journey through the darkness, just at the very edges of your sight, you could see the city on a hill. Hope would be restored. We're almost there. This is what our life is to be. Not just selfishly consuming the gospel for our own good. I got my ticket to heaven. The rest of the world can go to hell like we earned it or something. No, this is an invitation to walk with Jesus. And when you walk with him and drink deeply from him, you're overwhelmed with him. I'm going to close with just these few reminders. The band can go ahead and come up. I've got just another minute or two left. A few helpful reminders to help us understand and close this gap between our life and the life that God has called us to. Jason would say it this way. Let me, let me encourage you with this. This is an encouragement. That we aren't called to save the world, but only serve the world. Saving the world is Jesus' role. It's already been taken. We, no one needs another Messiah. We aren't to have a Messiah complex, but only to play a small part to steward our time and place well. That we control our threshold. We must learn to ask the question, what is the Father doing? And to understand our own callings and gifts to show up faithfully and creatively to the places that God's Spirit is already at work. We rely on God's grace and not our goodness. The list of the people that God used in the Bible is a long list of people whose lives were full of failure. Abraham was false. Moses, a murderer and a weak leader. David, an adulterer. Paul, a persecutor of the church. Peter, an overambitious zealot. And God used them all greatly. We've got to take our eyes off ourselves and allow God to have control of the story. And as he does, our desires and confidence and our abilities will be redrawn and reshaped. And finally, we need the compassion of Jesus. It says that Jesus was moved with compassion for the crowds that he saw. His love for people was deep and emotional and visceral. When we are filled with the compassion of Jesus, we will find that fear, wounding, insecurity, and lack of equipping will fail to be sufficient obstacles for the overwhelming energy of God's love through us. We need the love of Jesus for our neighbor and for the world. As you're there thinking, ask a few questions that might spawn some kind of conversation with God. Have you received the hospitality of God? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're on the outside looking in. You don't know what it's like to have the love of God reach down through the person of Jesus and grab your heart. Today would be a day that you would step across the line of faith. It would be a great day. I'd love to pray with you about that. I'll be in the back in a little bit. Have you received his healing, his restoration? Are you walking in his identity and in his power? Are you allowing him to work through you? 
as a broken vessel carrying around this beautiful gospel. We take communion here in a minute. It's just, just again, great reminder of the hospitality of God inviting us to his table. And as we take, and we leave here in just a little bit, go back to our seats, back to our cars, back to our lives. Jesus tells us that we should go and proclaim his death until he comes again. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the word. Lord, if I can be honest before you, we, I have failed so many times of the threshold of my life taking people to the foot of the cross. I repent of those selfish motives that I had. Lord, and I ask, Lord, that we, your people, would live lives that point other people to you. Not for our own glory, not for numbers in some magazine, not for any of those things. Lord, just out of the overflow of what you're doing in us, that it would be extended. The kingdom of light would expand. Would you do this in and through us? For those in here today that are weary and beat down, those that have heavy sins that seem to have paralyzed them, those who've been hurt and wounded so deeply, Lord, may all of us find restoration in you at the foot of the cross. And as we take communion here in just a minute, as we take the bread and dip it into the cup and partake of it, may we be reminded of your incredible love for us. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, amen. Our communion servers are here. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but Scripture outlines you do have to be part of God's family. So if that's you, we invite you to come. If you're unsure if you're part of God's family or not, maybe you just use this.